Running Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Alrighty, let's do the smart thing. And let's have a word of prayer to make sure our hearts are ready and prepared for what he has to say this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, uh, we do this every Sunday, but we never want to take this for granted. We have the opportunity to come together as a body. And what a blessing that is, just to hear of you, just to grow of you. And I pray for this next time in the Word that you'd help us to forget everything we're struggling with and just really focus on you. And as we walk out of this building, that we're growing in our walks, our relationships with you, and that we cannot be the same because you have touched us through your Spirit and we want to be changed and different, Lord, to be lights and witnesses. Thank you. Thank you for this time in your name. Amen. Amen. Romans 8, continuing our study here through the book of Romans. Romans 8, verse 12, starts out by saying, Therefore, and you remember we say this all the time, when it says therefore, you need to think why it's therefore. Paul is trying to make a point here. So therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So therefore, we have to talk about this concept of the flesh again. This is something we've been talking about for the last few weeks in our study here through the book of Romans, about what this means and what this represents, this idea of the flesh, and that we don't want to live according to the flesh. The flesh is who we are. It's that sinful nature. And and when you live according to the flesh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing these awful, horrible things. But if I'm walking in fear, worry, or anxiety, I'm living in the flesh. If I'm walking in unforgiveness, I'm living in the flesh. Any time that I'm allowing my emotions, my who I am as a human being to control me and not the Spirit of the Lord, I'm walking in the flesh. And the Bible makes this abundantly clear here in Romans 8, that if you walk in the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, verse 13, you will die. Just look at that one more time, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. You'll die. You, you will just die spiritually. You will just die emotionally. And, and I've been saved for 22 years. And there have been moments in my walk with the Lord where I was not very spirit-led. And I was living according to the flesh. And it's just like it says in Psalm 1. You just start to dry up spiritually. Have you ever felt that? You just, you're just drying up. Prayer no longer feels powerful. When you're in the Word, you're like, what am I? I don't even understand what I'm reading. Worships, oh, who cares? And you just start to become dry. And that's where Paul is saying, analyze yourself at that moment. Are you living in the flesh? And at that time, generally, yeah, I am. So that's why he comes and tells us that we're not supposed to live according to the flesh, but we're supposed to by the Spirit, verse 13. And the flesh does not have to control us anymore. Some of your translations in verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Some of your translations say we have no obligation to the flesh. It has no power over us because the flesh is death and the spirit is life. Just jump back a few verses to Romans 8 that we went through earlier, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded, to be fleshly minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind is fighting against God. When you live in the flesh, in that carnal mind, you're constantly fighting against God. And the Bible makes it clear you cannot have life and peace. Look at verse 6. 
We cannot have life and peace when we're walking in the flesh. So we have to choose. Do we want the spirit or do we want the flesh? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. It's really easy to walk in the flesh. I've come to the conclusion it takes no effort to walk in the flesh. Do you ever realize the things you're really good at the Bible calls sin? I'm really good at worrying. I'm really good at harboring unforgiveness. I'm really good at getting angry. And I am the best at being lazy. I am really good at those things. And the Lord says, don't. He says, I would like you to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those take effort. That takes according to walking in the Spirit. But if I stay in the flesh, yeah, I'm alive. I'm moving. I'm working. I'm a productive member of society. But spiritually, I'm dead. And I'm just slowly drying up, just like Psalm 1 says. I need to be in the Spirit. And that's a choice that I make. Because look at verse 14. For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That phrase there, led, led by the Spirit of God. Now, listen, I want to ask you a question, and I really want you to think about this. Really think about this answer. This last week, the last seven days of your life, were you led by the Spirit of God? What led you these last seven days? Because it just tells me right here in verse 14 that I want to be led by the Spirit. Now, what led you? Just be honest. Did work lead you? Work told you what time to get up? Work told you what time to go to bed? Did money lead you? Did bills lead you? Because you had bills you had to pay? Did your children's calendar of sporting events lead you? Did life lead you? I had to get this done. It's now spring. We're looking at mowing the yard. What led you this last week? Because what we want to lead us, verse 14, is the Spirit of God. But I'm just going to be completely honest with you. A lot of times when I look out across the church, and including myself, it is not the Spirit of God leading us. It's life. It's events. It's kids. It's work. It's bills. It's doctor's appointments. We want to be led by the Spirit. Because when we're led by the Spirit, look at the catch to verse 14. These are sons of God. How do you know if you're a son of God? Are you led by the Spirit? Think about that for a second. And now let's just go back even farther than a week. How about the last month of your life? How about the last year, the last decade? Can I honestly say, Lord, when I read Romans 8, 14, for as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Lord, I want to be led by you. I want my day to be dictated by your will. I want my day to be controlled by what you are calling me to do. I don't want to wake up in the morning and see my calendar and say this, 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 and this. And Lord, if I got time, I'll try to pencil you in. No, Lord, I want to be led. See, I have noticed in my Christian walk, when I'm not led by the Spirit, once again, I start to feel spiritually dry. And then I start wondering, where's this joy? Where's this peace that the Bible keeps telling me about? Because I'm reading it, I'm not feeling it. I'm reading it, I'm not seeing it. Am I led? And now look at the blessing that happens, because when we're led by the Spirit of God... Verse 14, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with them, that we also may be glorified together. Listen, we're not only sons. We have been adopted, verse 15, by 
God. Think about that. Before you were saved, you were fatherless and wandering this world. And God came and said, I want to adopt you. I want you. And he brought you into his family and called you a son or daughter of God. That is life-changing. Completely life-changing. A few years ago, we had a couple here from church that went to China and adopted a little gal over in China. And if you've ever talked to anybody that's ever gone to China before and you really understand what happens over there, oh my. So to adopt this little gal, bring her back here to Ohio. We were over at their house talking to them and we said, this is life-changing. I mean, this, this is next to salvation. This is like the biggest event in this child. It just completely changed this child's life to be adopted into this family. We have been adopted into the family of God when we accepted Christ as our Savior. And we are now a son or daughter of the Lord. That changes everything we do. And so therefore, we can now cry out, Abba, Father. Abba. That's not a name we use a lot. You ever realize how many different names the Lord has? Because each of his name kind of fits a different scenario and different situation. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord that provides. You know, we could just go down the list. And we do the same thing as humans. I don't know about you guys. You know, we got the five boys at home. And each of our boys have just collected these other names. Elias is also known as Pookie. I have no idea. Judah is known as Monkey. Don't know. Kenan is known as Pygmy. Now, I know he's pygmy because when he was little, he would climb on everything he shouldn't climb on, and he would put everything in his mouth, and he would chew it. So he's like a pygmy goat, so we called him pygmy. Laden is peanut butter pie. I have no idea. Tyrus is tiger because he likes Daniel Tiger, but recently Tyrus has become known as Bob. And we just say, how's it going, Bob? He goes, Bob, good. That's what he says. So they have these little names. God has all these different names. And one of the names that he goes by is a Bob. Now, we don't use that a lot, do we? When's the last time you were praying and you started your prayer out with Abba? This name, dare we say, is the closest, most intimate name you can have with the Lord. It's only used three times in the Bible. It's used one time here. But to show the closeness of it, when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out Abba to God. That's what he used. It's a really interesting word. It's translated Father. That's what it means, true. But it's deeper than that. Abba, father. Also used as the term of tender endearment by a beloved child. And an affectionate, dependent relationship with their father. Also known as daddy or papa. It carries a much deeper, closer meaning. So when it says Abba, it's like you're really saying, daddy. We have been adopted. Now that sounds weird to us as adults, doesn't it, a little bit? Daddy. But you know what? The other night when Tyrus, who was three, was in his bedroom and he was scared, he started crying and he screamed out, Daddy. I stopped what I was doing and I went in. He did not scream out, Father, if you have time, would you please come into my room if it is your will? (laughs) He cried out, Daddy. And I knew exactly what he needed. And Daddy showed up. Where have we lost that closeness? I have known that this term, Abba, means daddy, papa. I've known that. But when I pray, 
Father God, I just want to thank you for the time to be here. Lord, be with me. It's so official. So this was really hitting me this week. And it was difficult. I'm just going to be honest. I was, I was driving home, and I was really overwhelmed by something. And I was just like, Lord, I'm just, I'm fearful. I'm anxious. I'm worked up about this. And I had been studying this, and I said, Abba. And I caught myself, and I said, Daddy, I'm scared. Now, that sounds weird, coming out of a 38-year-old. Daddy, I'm scared. It does. I'm not going to base my walk with Christ on emotion, but at that moment, I really understood what that word means. Now, my parents, you know, come out here. And if I'm talking to them in the hallway, you know, hey, Dad, how's it going? Hey, Mom, how's it going? You would think it's strange if you heard me. Hey, Daddy, how are you today? (laughs) Has anybody seen my mommy? Is my mommy here today? I can't remember if my mommy's here today. That sounds weird, but if I come to you and say, hey, has anybody seen my mom? She's supposed to be here today. See, that sounds official, see, because we're adults. I remember when I was in college, we had a campus crusade group that got together, and there was a gal that she would start her prayers out with Daddy. I thought, that just sounds weird. She understood Abba. Took me 20 years later. Now, if I'm praying in public, I don't know if I would use that term. But in my private prayer with the Lord, there's been times recently where it's, Abba, Daddy, I need you. This has got me. Are we willing to humble ourselves to the point of saying, I'm really just a young child? that's been adopted by God the Father, and Taddy, I need you right now. That's the intimacy and the closeness we're talking about. The problem is we base this idea of God the Father on our earthly relationships we have. And maybe if you didn't have a real close relationship with your father, it's difficult for you to think of calling God Daddy. Maybe you don't even like to think about your father. Maybe he plays no role, no whatever in your life. You can't base your opinion on your heavenly father on what's happened with your earthly father. Because your heavenly father said, I'm going to adopt you. Your heavenly father says, you're my son. Your heavenly father says, I'm your Abba. I'm your father. I'm your papa. I'm your daddy. And think of the blessing of that. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You are a child of God if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, adopted into his family, born again. And because of that, verse 15, there's no fear. There's no fear. No fear because why? Your daddy is here. Tyrus, 2.30 in the morning, daddy, as soon as I come in, no fear. Why? Because Abba is there. So when we walk in fear, worry, anxiety, what are we really saying? Daddy, I'm not really close to you like I should. I need to trust you. Look at this. Not only are we sons of God, adopted by God, children of God. Look at verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with them, that we also may be glorified together. We're heirs of God. Did you understand what that means? I am an heir of everything God has, and God has everything. That is amazing. My father, who has adopted me and says, call me daddy, says, I also want to give you everything. And not just be an heir of God, verse 17, a joint heir with Christ. Some of your translation says, co-heir with Christ. That word is used three times in the Bible, and it always talks about closeness and oneness. 
It's used to describe marriage in the Bible. Two people that become one. That's how close that I'm supposed to be with Christ and with God the Father, that I am not just an heir, but a joint heir. And he says, I want to bless you. And I want to take care of you and meet your needs just as a heavenly father wants to meet his kids' needs. Now, note I didn't say once, but he wants to meet our needs. And just as our fathers, as a father, I want to take care of my boys and help them and grow them, so does the Heavenly Father want to do that to us. And just as when my boys are going through a difficult time, I want to be their daddy, God the Father wants to be that for us. This is why the Bible says, do you have a childlike faith? Because my boys are still young enough that they don't even think about that. Tyrus will come up and scream, Daddy. Because he just wants to see his dad. Oh, Lord, help us to have that same heart. Now, look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with them, that we also may be glorified together. Now, heirs, joint heirs, if indeed we suffer with them, that we also may be glorified together. Here's the catch. If you want to share the glory, you've got to share the sufferings. You know, we leave a spot there for notes in your bulletin. If you're a note taker, just write that down. If you want to share the glory, you also have to share the sufferings. Wouldn't you like to change that verse? Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if indeed children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, stop, that we may also be glorified together. Can't we just take out if indeed we suffer with him? If you want to share the glory, you have to share the sufferings. Go with me to John 15, please. See, it's almost like the Lord is saying, James, do you want to be my son? Oh, Lord, yes. I adopt you. Amen. James, I'm not just going to adopt you. I'm going to make you an heir. Oh, Lord, thank you. I'll just take a scrap of anything. Oh, no. no I'm not, not going to make you an heir. You're a joint heir with Christ. Lord, you're giving me the same privileges and blessings of Christ, yes, joint heir. James, are you willing to go through what he went through? Lord, I'll just take the sliver. You know, I don't need the the joint heir. But as believers, there's a oneness there with Christ. And look what it says here, verse 18 of John 15. If the world hates you... You know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. As we joked before, you don't see a lot of Christian t-shirts with that on there. You don't see too many bumper stickers. And you don't too many people say, hey, that's my life verse. If you want to share the glory, you have to share the sufferings. Just, Just remember this. Verse 18, the world hated Christ. Verse 19, They're also going to hate you. Do you realize, as Christians, we are now the moral minority? We are. When it comes to what we believe is pure and right and God's holy standard, we are in the minority on a lot of those issues now. And the world hates us for that. The world just wants us to get along with them. The world just wants us to compromise. The world just wants us to say, can't you accept this and say it's okay? And we can't do that. 
And for parents that have kids going to school or going into work or you guys going to work, you know how hard that is to take a moral stand on what's right or wrong. You know that. And we have to realize this, that the world hated Jesus. They're going to hate us. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. See, if you talked like the world, dressed like the world, acted like the world, had your marriage like the world, raised your kids like the world, you would just be part of this big collective. Wouldn't be any problem. The problem is believers were called to a different standard. And so therefore, we do speak differently. We do act differently. We do dress differently. We do live differently. If you've been going through the small group studies with us in 1 Peter, one of the first points was this idea that we're pilgrims, we're foreigners, we're strangers in this land. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not on this earth. We are called to a different moral standard. And so therefore, we are not of the world and the world does not love us. We're actually, verse 19, chose to be out of the world. God says, I have called you to a different standard of living. So therefore, the world hates you. Because we convict them. We make them feel bad for the choices they make. It's not that we're trying to say we're holier than thou, but we live a different standard of life. I'm telling you right now, it is easier to go the path of the world. Think about what Christ said. Wide is the path to destruction. Narrow is the path to life. You know how hard it is to walk the narrow path. But that's what God has called us to. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Think of what they did to Jesus. Called him a son of Satan, powered from Beelzebub. They called him a drunk. Eventually, they wanted to kill him. They attempted to kill him. Then they beat him and killed him and tortured him. Why do we think that we're going to be held to a different standard. Now, granted, where we live, we're very blessed. We don't suffer physical persecution. That sure happened in other places of the world. Why is it as believers, when we take a stand for what's right, are we so shocked and amazed that people are against what we stand for? When we try to do what's right at work, why are we so shocked and amazed in how people respond to that? You have to remember... If they treated Jesus this way, that's how they're also going to treat you. That's how they're going to treat me. God has still called us to make that stand on what's right. Not because we're better. Oh, no, we know our sin. But just because we want to stand for truth. So if we want to share the glory, we also need to share the sufferings. And we need to be prepared for that. Jump back, if you will, please, to Romans 8. So that word sufferings pops up. Why are we suffering, Lord? I mean, if, we, if I'm a child of God, if I'm an heir of God, if I'm a joint heir with Christ, why, why is there suffering here? Well, the answer is found right there in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. See, there, there's a suffering that goes on right now. In this world. And you are suffering. Some of you are suffering physically. Some of you are suffering emotionally. Some of you are struggling spiritually. This world is suffering. But the first point that Paul is trying to make here through the Spirit is the suffering you're going on right now does not compare to the glory that awaits us. It does not compare. You may be thinking, you don't understand what I'm going through. 
You know how Paul describes the suffering you're going through right now? He describes it as light and momentary. Now, right now, does that feel light and momentary to you? No. This is also the guy, Paul, that had been, what, lashed five times on the back, stoned to death, possibly at least once, if not twice, shipwrecked. And the guy says, hey, this is light and momentary compared to what's coming. Do we believe that? I mean, do we really believe that what I'm going through now pales in comparison to what God has in store for me later on? But at the moment, it is so easy to get focused on the pain of right now. Dawn told me I have to be careful because the boys now have reached a point where they like to listen to the messages. And so... Every now and then, they like to listen to the messages when they go to bed. So they'll be going to bed, we'll put them to bed, and all of a sudden, they'll come flying out 20 minutes later. And it's like, Dad, you mentioned us. And I'm always thinking, what did I say? So Elias has found out now that he can go back and go back to when we first started putting messages online, which is like four or five years ago. I have no idea what I said about him back then. I'm afraid to know. So i got to be careful on what I say because I'm going to tell a story here about one of my kids and it's coming up to spring, summer. And I don't know about you guys, spring, summer, at the Irvin household with the boys, there's a splinter every day. Every day. Finger, foot, just a splinter every day. Now, some of my boys can handle splinters very well. Other ones can't. And i got to be careful in what I say. I can't tell you that Kenan's the one that can't handle it. But Kenan can't handle it. So when Kenan gets a splinter, it's like the end of the world. So what happens is we do the, this is our parenting skills right here. We just try to buy them off. Kenan, hold your hand still. Hold your hand still. And, and you can have some candy. Kenan, hold your, one time there was a splinter that we were trying to get out and he was all over the place. I finally said, Kenan, if you hold your hand still, I'll give you a dollar. I'm paying you to be good. What are you trying to do? You're trying to tell them the glory that awaits them is worth the suffering that you're about to go through. That's what you're trying to tell them. Kenan, be good and I will pay you. The Lord is trying to tell you, guys, heaven is so worth it. Trust me. Do you realize how little we know about heaven, though? For our eternal destination, God is kind of purposely vague on it. We know more about the millennial reign of Christ than we know about heaven. In fact, Paul, who we believe died and went to heaven in Corinthians, he comes back and he says, Guys, you want me to explain heaven to you? Okay, I will. I can't. He says, It's so amazing, words can't describe it. Because it's just so unbelievable. God says, I can't describe you how amazing it is. You just have to trust me. It's worth it. This is what he's telling us here in verse 18. Trust me that the sufferings you're going through now are worth it, and they are pale in comparison to what awaits you later on. Now the question comes up, do you believe that? Do you believe what you're going through right now is light and momentary compared to what God has in store for you for all of eternity? Now there's still times of distress. Ecclesiastes says that there's times of sorrow, there's times of pain, and I'm not trying to downplay that. If you came up to me and you've experienced an awful loss, I would not look you in the eye and say, hey, get over it. Heaven awaits. No, I will weep with those who weep. I will rejoice with those who rejoice. But there is a mindset that we need to remember that this is a light, momentary affliction compared to what is going to await us 
as sons and daughters of God, heirs of God, and then joint heirs with Christ. If we share the glory, we share the sufferings, and they say it is worth it. Why is there suffering, though? Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. This creation, this world that we live in, was subjected to futility. That's what my translation says. Other translation says vanity, frustration. One says simply God's curse. Why is there suffering? Because this world that we live on is completely, utterly cursed. This is the result of sin coming into the world. So when this world is full of suffering, and I sit there and I say, God, why? God says, this is not what I intended for my children. What I intended for my children was the Garden of Eden. What I have intended for my children is heaven, not this. This is a cursed, fallen world that has been subjected to that curse. Look at it says, verse 20, not willingly. No, but this is part of that curse. And look at the description in verse 21. We're in bondage. Verse 22, groaning and laboring. When I watch the news, I see a world that's groaning and laboring and in bondage. It's awful. And this is a cursed, fallen world that is frustrating, full of vanity and emptiness and futility, and the world groans. Then it goes one step further. Verse 23, Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The earth is cursed. The earth is moaning and groaning. The earth is in that pain of labor and so are we. Our bodies are falling apart. We have emotional fear and worry and stress. We were just talking at, um, at uh, the, the men's study just the other day. And we we're talking about the anticipation of heaven and what that means and represents. And just this joy of no more fear, no more anxiety, no more worry. When's the last time you walked without fear, worry, or anxiety? When's the last time you walked without physical pain? When's the last time you walked in just the spirit of the Lord, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Oh, Lord, I eagerly await that. Until that day comes, I do moan. (laughs) I do groan. But the Lord also says, there's a joy set before me that I know what's coming. So therefore, this cursed fallen world does not bring me down. Because I realize I look past this. This is momentary. I look to the glory of what's coming later. And that's what gives me joy. And that's what gives me hope. Look at verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, this hope of what's to come. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for for what he sees? Why can't God just reveal to us what heaven... Lord, just give us a glimpse to know what we're shooting for. He says, if I reveal it to you... You're no longer walking in hope or faith. See, hope and faith is walking in an expectation of what's to come. If you already have it, well, then you're not hoping for it. I mean, imagine me coming up to you and saying, Hey, how's it going? You say I'm good. And you say, Is there anything I can pray for you for, James? Oh, yeah, could you pray for me? I'm really hoping to find a wife. Well, that sounds really silly. I already have one. I'm really hoping to have a family. I already have it. Why do I have to hope for something? That I already have. 
God is saying, you're hoping for something that you haven't seen. If I reveal it to you, then you're no longer walking in faith and hope. This is a walk of faith and hope. And he goes, trust me. Verse 25, for if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. He goes, you're showing me your perseverance. Some of your translations showing me your patience by hoping and trusting in what's to come. So, by me persevering, by me enduring, by me having patience and trusting on what's to come, God says, you're showing your faith is in your Abba, your daddy, your father, and that you are trusting in him as an heir, as a joint heir, as a son, because you are trusting in what is to come. So, where does this perseverance come from? Where does this patience come from? Go to Romans 5, please. Jump back a few chapters here. If you remember correctly, Romans 1 shows us that God created the world. Romans 2 tells us since God created the world, He's the one that's allowed to set the moral standards. Romans 3 tells us that we're all sinners. We failed those moral standards. Romans 4 tells us though faith in Jesus is what gives us hope and salvation. And that's where we pick it up here, verse 1 of Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have salvation. Through him also we have access by faith into this grace, into which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's what we're talking about. Lord, I have hope that there's something bigger, better out there. Verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Glory in tribulations. Just honestly answer this in your mind. Do you glory in tribulations? Or are you more like, Lord, I just want it to end Make it stop now. Do we glory in tribulations? I remember after we had this teaching a few weeks ago, I was talking to someone who's going through a difficult time. Called him up. How you doing? We're talking a little bit. And I remember them saying, and it really hit me. I said, I'm really just trying to glory in tribulations right now. I thought, amen. What, what a mindset to say, Lord, this is difficult. This is not what I want. This is not what I hope for. But I'm trusting that you're using this. And how is the Lord using this? Verse 3, we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces, here's our word, perseverance or patience. So do you want perseverance and patience? God is saying the only way to get it is to go through tribulations. Do you realize that? As man of God, if I say, Lord, I want perseverance, give it to me. doesn't happen. He says, James, you want perseverance? You want patience? You have to go through tribulations to therefore grow into that. Think about that. The only way you can become a patient man or woman of God that waits on the Lord is to go through tribulations that teach you perseverance and patience. That's the only way you will get that. After that, look what happens next. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character. So, Lord, I want to be a strong moral character. I want to be a man of God. He says, good. Be a man of patience and perseverance. Sounds good. The only way you get that... It's tribulations. So after character, what do we have next? Perseverance, character, and finally character, hope. See, you want hope. Well, if you want hope, have a strong character in the Lord. If you want hope, persevere. If you want hope, glory in tribulations. This is the way the system works. It does not read this. And not only that, we also have hope. No, there's a whole lot in verses 3 and 4. You want hope, you glory in tribulation, 
knowing that tribulation produces character, per, excuse me, perseverance and patience. Patience and perseverance produce character, and then character produces hope. Hope then says, I have hope that there's more to this world. I have hope that there's more to what I'm struggling with, that there is a glory awaiting for me later on in heaven where there is no tears, no fears, no nothing. And that's the blessing that I have. But that hope only comes when I'm willing to realize I'm going to go through difficult times. But, listen, but my Abba, my father, my daddy will be there. I'm a son of God. I'm an heir of God. I'm a joint heir with Christ. And that's what gives me the hope to get through this. But until you realize, back to Romans 8, our first real point of Abba, Father, Daddy, none of this means anything. Because when you're going through a difficult time and you're looking for hope, you're looking for just something to get you through. And I come to you and say, cling to your father, your daddy. Well, what does that mean? We have to go back to the first point. He's my Abba, my father, my daddy. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I'm an heir. I'm a joint heir. If I want the glory, I want the blessing, I also share the suffering. Just like Jesus did. This world is cursed. I am cursed. I moan. I groan. But there is hope. And that hope comes from knowing and trusting that these difficult times I'm going through, I glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. So therefore, through these difficult times, I see the big picture, and I say, okay, Lord, this momentary light affliction, this suffering, does not compare to the glory that awaits me. And that's what keeps my heart, mind, and soul focused on Him. Mars, if you want to come forward here for the final song.